Hello, and welcome to Plotting Through the Presidents. Welcome back. I'm Howard Dory. I'm Jessica Dory. And this is our season one finale. Yes. <laughs> We're going to be taking a little time off. We did six episodes, but we'll be back with brand new episodes before you know it. Please subscribe or follow the Facebook page so you don't miss a thing while we're gone. We might have some bonus episodes or maybe just dead silence. <laughs> I'm looking forward to that. <laughs> the dead silence? Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, me too. We're going to be taking a look at one of the most controversial early presidents. Just saying his name online is like setting off a bomb. Jefferson? Andrew Jackson. Oh, yeah. Jefferson's pretty controversial, but Andrew Jackson is a nightmare with legs. So <laughs> I can see. I would, I would agree. So a few years ago, I wrote about how Andrew Jackson is, is basically a real-life horror movie monster. Right. Just in the sense that he was almost supernaturally unkillable, like Freddy or Jason. Mm-hmm. Uh, I shared that post in an American history group on Facebook. It was getting tons of comments, lots of heated debate. Um, most of it had nothing to do with the article. And the post was removed from the group. Oh, yeah. And they removed it because you had caused such a... Such a shitstorm. Yeah, <laughs> that the uh, a moderator told moderators. me a moderator told me it was removed because it had caused a shitstorm. A shitstorm. <laughs> um, which reminds me of something that Andrew Jackson once said: "I was born for a storm, and a calm does not suit me." It's very true of him, from what I know, and all the bullets. Yeah, he dodged or survived somehow. Well, that's not the focus today. Okay. Today Your we're going today. Well, one bullet. <clears throat> okay. Today, we're going to talk about a storm that Andrew Jackson never asked for or wanted, but maybe one he was born for. Uh, First, I want to say, okay, there are a lot of terrible things about Andrew Jackson. The realities behind some people's just total aversion to even talking about him are valid, and I don't want to downplay them, but they're not the focus of this episode. The focus is something more positive, I think. Today, we're going to look at the slut-shaming evolution of Andrew Jackson. Wow. A story in three acts. Okay. So this is all three acts are about slut shaming? Yeah. His evolution. How he evolved. Yes. As a slut shamer. Okay. I'm not sure what angle this is yet. So I'm, I was strap asking in. questions and I'm just going to strap. Strap in. And listen. I'm ready. <laughs> Act one is the head of the rowdies. What? Act two, we're going to talk about Rachel's honor. And act three, we're going to dig into the petticoat affair. Oh. I don't right. know any of these. Well, you're in for a treat. All, all new to me. Act one is the head of all the rowdies. So what kind of monster moves someone's outhouse? Oh, my gosh. Yeah, that was young Andrew Jackson. So he was the frat boy that John Quincy was not. Yeah, I think that that's pretty appropriate. Although John Quincy Adams did stay up late at night playing the flute in the streets and drinking with his friends and having hangovers in college. But he wasn't like this backwoods, rowdy, cockfighting, drinking, outhouse moving, private property <laughs> trashing guy that Andrew Jackson absolutely was. Okay. So he moved an outhouse? Probably several. It was like a prank that they would do. So like cow tipping? Yeah, except. Like outhouse Yeah, so y- you're a farmer or whoever, and you go outside because you have to do your business, and your outhouse is not there. That's just not cool. It's terrible. But, you know, I've squatted in the woods and on trails many a time, and it can be done. So, I mean, <laughs> if you got to go, you got to go. So why are you so upset when I'm in the bathroom? Am I upset when you're in the bathroom? <laughs> when you have to use it and the other one's being used, I think maybe you should just go outside. Well, no biggie. We live No in... <laughs> big. You got to do what you got to do. We live in modern times, <laughs> and um, I'm just saying back in the day for going outside to use a bathroom... Then you could just squat and do it outside. If you're so, you don't out- feel bad. Andrew Jackson was doing the right thing by moving <laughs> these outhouses. No, I'm, I don't know what I'm saying, and you need to edit all that out. Just all of it. I think we should start over. Hello, <laughs> hello, <laughs> welcome back. <laughs> Who are we talking about today? <laughs> well, James Parton was a biographer of uh-huh. several presidents. And he was writing about Andrew Jackson in the 1850s, and he tried to track down anyone who knew about Jackson's past. He went to the small town of Salisbury, North Carolina, which is where Andrew Jackson studied law in around 1787, 1788. And he talked to some of the older folks who remember Jackson. One woman said Jackson was the head of all the rowdies hereabouts. Then he heard another story about Jackson. And since this this is the only source of this story, 
other later biographers just kind of added their own flavor to it. So I'm just going to read the whole original thing from James Parton. Wow. Okay, I'm ready. There was a dancing school in Salisbury, which, of course, the gay Jackson could not fail to attend. The dancing school resolved to give a Christmas ball, and Andrew Jackson was appointed to serve as one of the managers thereof. There were living at that time in Salisbury two women of ill repute, a mother and daughter, Molly and Rachel Wood, women notoriously dissolute. Jackson, who was excessively fond of practical joke, sent these two women tickets of admission to the ball to see what would come of it. I already feel bad for these ill-reputed women. Oh, just wait. On the evening of the ball, lo, the women presented themselves, flaunting in all the colors of the rainbow. Some confusion ensued. The dancing was suspended. The ladies withdrew to one side of the room, half giggling, half offended. Molly and Rachel were soon led out, and the ball went on as before. In the course of the evening, when it came out that Jackson had sent them invitations, the ladies took him to task, upon which he humbly apologized, declaring that it was merely a piece of fun, and that he scarcely supposed the women would have the face to make their appearance. And if they did, he thought the ladies would take it as a joke. So he was a sociopath. I mean, it sounds like he has no remorse for actual people's feelings. He certainly had no regard for these two women. He thought it would be funny to... I don't know, make it was like it's like Carrie, you know, like right. she she gets to be prom queen and then they dump blood on her. Exactly. I mean, it's something you would do at summer camp, maybe when you're a young teen or tween. He and was probably something. 18, 19 here. Oh, he was. Yeah, I mean, that makes a little bit more sense. Be- I, I just can't picture a young adult or, a, you know, an adult doing this to another human being unless there's something psychologically wrong with him. Agreed. Um, So his feelings about women and honor seemed to have evolved over time, especially when he cared about those women. And that brings us to act two, Hmm. Rachel. Oh, so did he fall in love with Rachel Wood? No, different Rachel. Oh, a different Rachel. Yeah. Okay. That was a quick act. It was quick. It's going to be balanced out by a very long act three. See, okay. Yeah. So a couple years after that, Jackson moved out west, and that's where he met Rachel Donaldson. Rachel was already married to an abusive, unfaithful, and jealous husband, Louis Robards. They lived in Kentucky, and at one point, Robards got so upset with her that he threw her out of their house, and she had to move back in with her mother in Tennessee. Did they have children? No. Oh, well, that's good. Then, Robards came back to her, and he moved in with her mother, too. So they're all living there with Rachel's mother. There were other boarders living with them, too, and one of them was... I have no idea. Andrew Jackson. Andrew Jackson was living with them? That's where Andrew Jackson met Rachel. All right. So Jackson was definitely into her. How old was he at this point? He was probably 19, 20, 21. this is right after he had cranked those innocent women. Yes. Okay. So Jackson was into Rachel, but she was a married woman. Uh, Louis Robards still got crazy jealous, though. At one point, Jackson confronted him and said, look, you don't have anything to worry about. There's nothing going on here. Robards threatened to beat him. And Andrew Jackson did what Andrew Jackson does best. Moved his outhouse? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that's that's what he did. Okay. He's like, you you know, I'll get you later. Here, here, here's this bean casserole I made you. (laughs) Yeah, just wait. I think you've won, but here's some beans, yeah. No, he challenged him to a duel. Oh, gosh. They never dueled, and Jackson ended up moving out to avoid any controversy. Then a year later, Robards up and left again. He went back to Kentucky to get some things, and he told one of his friends, I'm never coming back. So he left his wife yeah, with so, her yeah. mother. So Rachel was alone, but and still available. married to this dirtbag. Oh, but available, basically. Available except in the legal sense. But he had left forever. Supposedly. I don't understand the law back then. It's messy. Another year goes by, and Rachel started hearing rumors that Robards was going to come back and force her to move back to Kentucky with him. She decided she did not want that. Was she in love with Andrew Jackson? That's not quite clear. Okay. She decided she was going to run away to Natchez in Spanish Florida. The journey there would be dangerous, though, Hmm. because of the possibility of Native American attacks along the way. So she joined a family who was going down there anyway, but they would need another man to ride along to keep them safe. So this is like Donner Party episode two. Yeah, but less snow, more angry Indians. Okay. Uh, So guess who volunteered to help keep them safe? I bet Andrew Jackson volunteered. It was Andrew Jackson. (laughs) 
Robards heard about this and he was not happy. He f- he left. What say does he get? He still believes that he possesses her. It's entitlement. The man's entitlement. Yeah. He filed for a divorce, and back then it wasn't easy. You had to get, like, the state legislature to approve it, and they did, but there was a process involved in finalizing it, and Andrew and Rachel didn't really know about those details. They Mm -hmm. figured they were in the clear to be together. Oh. So by the time Rachel's divorce with Jason, or not Jason Robards, (laughs) (laughs) by the time Rachel's divorce with Robards was finalized, she'd already been married to Andrew Jackson for two years. Ooh, so she was married to two men at the same time. Yes, that was not cool. Uh, no, I don't think it's cool today either. <laughs> no, it's 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 frowned upon. <laughs> it's definitely not top-notch behavior. Right, well, I mean, some people have arrangements where they're all happy and that's consensual and right. um, maybe not legal. This wasn't that. Oh, I like how you brought in some poly marriage there backhandedly. I keep bringing it up and you're <laughs> every time you're like, mm, I don't know. <laughs> so... When they heard about this little timing hiccup, Andrew and Rachel secretly got married again to make sure it was official. And all of this misunderstanding, it's, it's pretty understandable. Mm-hmm. But Jackson was worried that it might come back to haunt him. And it did come back to haunt him. Yeah, well, I'm sure. Yeah. So Jackson... Emails come back to haunt current political leaders today. Right. So I can't imagine why a double marriage and affair wouldn't come back to haunt him. So Jackson started having to defend Rachel's honor against the charge of bigamy. Um, As early as 1803, he almost got into a duel over it. Then in 1806, Jackson got into an argument over a horse race with a man named Charles Dickinson. And Dickinson, when he was drunk, ended up insulting Rachel's morality. Wow. Then these two really did duel. So he got into a lot of fights because of this relationship. Yeah, a lot of sites and even some books, they say that Andrew Jackson got into hundreds of duels in his lifetime, but that's not true at all. He got into maybe two, two and a half, three duels total, but he definitely threatened a lot more duels than that. Okay. And he challenged people to them. So he was the one in the, you know, next to the lockers in high school who was like, you're going to throw down, but then doesn't. Sorry, just a lot of memories. (laughs) so this was his like most legit duel Mm -hmm. and in this duel jackson ended up getting shot in the chest the bullet lodged near his heart and it bothered him for the rest of his life can't imagine why but while he stood there bleeding with his hand on his chest he got to take his shot he lifted his arm and the gun didn't go off dickinson must have been over there like just peeing his pants at this point seeing jackson like standing there waiting taking his turn Then Jackson fired again. He hit Dickinson in the stomach, and Dickinson died later that day. Oh, my gosh. So he killed Dickinson, even though Dickinson got the first shot. Yeah. (sighs) Even though this duel wasn't entirely about Rachel, that was part of it. So he's already killed one man defending Rachel's honor. Wow. Yeah, the lesson is you don't want to insult Rachel Jackson. Okay. I'll keep that in mind. Yeah. That didn't stop people from trying, though. The question of whether Rachel was a bigamist, it became a big talking point in the election of 1828 when people were digging up dirt on Jackson. I just feel so bad for this woman again. I mean, here she is just trying to escape an abusive relationship and find happiness. And her name is constantly dragged through the mud, probably by a man, too, that was bad to her. And he was trying to run away from her. It's just, I don't know. Yeah, not a great situation for Rachel. No. But don't worry, it gets worse. Oh, gosh. So Jackson protected her as best he could. He easily won the election. Rachel was not looking forward to facing the judgment of Washington, D.C. society and being further scrutinized as a first lady. Her health wasn't great either. And she told a friend, I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of God than live in that palace in Washington. Wow. So she's basically saying she'd rather die. Than be first lady. Yeah. But she was a good wife and she was going to go along with it. She went into Nashville to get a dress for the inauguration. And while she was there, she stumbled upon a pamphlet defending her honor against attacks from the other side. This was the first time that she realized the extent of what people were saying about her. She had a heart attack a few days later. Oh, my God. She'd already had health problems to start with, but this did her in and she died. Oh, my God. Rachel Jackson died of a heart attack after reading a pamphlet. Yeah. About about why everyone hates her. So is it correlated? Can we say that at this point? It's a hell of a coincidence. Mm-hmm. And even if it's not perfectly correlated, 
what matters is that Andrew Jackson believed it was correlated. Oh, no. He he was gutted. He stayed mm. with her body all night and through the next day before he could be pulled away. Uh. She was buried in the dress that she bought for his inauguration. And so she died before the inauguration. Yeah, she never got to see him inaugurated as president. That is really sad. Jackson said after her funeral that he could only pray that I may have the grace to enable me to forget or forgive any enemy who has ever imagined that blessed one who is now safe from all suffering and sorrow, whom they tried to put to shame for my sake. Mm. And that quote might have been paraphrased in later accounts to this more famous quote of his. Mm -hmm. May God Almighty forgive her murderers. I never can. So Jackson, after this, he grew closer to some of his friends after Rachel's death, including a man named John Henry Eaton, who was a U.S. senator. And it was Eaton who wrote these words that are etched on Rachel's gravestone. A being so gentle and so virtuous, slander might wound but could not dishonor. So Jackson was headed to the White House without his wife, but soon he would find another woman whose honor he could defend. And it would almost bring down his entire administration. Oh, my gosh. And that brings us to Act 3. Oh, the long act. The long act. The Petticoat Affair. Oof. So the Petticoat Affair, it's also called the Eaton Affair. And we're going to start with Margaret Eaton. Okay. Back when she was Margaret O'Neill. Mm-hmm. Was she, she married to an abusive person as well? No. Okay, good. Yeah. Margaret Eaton was born in 1799. She was an innkeeper's daughter in Washington, D.C., So from the time she was young, she was helping to serve drinks in the bar there, hobnobbing with congressmen. She was a huge social butterfly. She had dark hair and curls, and by all accounts, she was gorgeous. So gorgeous that they made a movie about the whole petticoat affair, and she was played by Joan Crawford. Mm. And the movie was called The Gorgeous Hussy. Oh, jeez. What a title. Right? Uh, I ordered the DVD. It has not arrived yet. What? Yeah. Looking forward to that one. Oh, where's that one going to live? We're trying to minimize. It's not streaming. Oh, okay, fine. All right. When she was 12, she went to a huge ball where all the young girls danced the minuet, and she was crowned the best of the ball by First Lady Dolly Madison. She could play the piano well. She was learning French. For an innkeeper's daughter, she was pretty well educated. When she was 14 or 15, uh, one boy, the nephew of the Secretary of the Navy, he fell in love with her and was so heartbroken that she didn't return his affections that he took poison and tried to poison her. Wow. She was a heartbreaker. Yeah, but you don't poison people just because they break up with you or they don't want you. Agree to disagree. <laughs> I'm just saying. Sure. What, what are these measures that people are taking? Yeah, I, I don't know what power she had over people, but yeah, they're obviously responsible for their own behavior. This is just going to show how, how alluring she was to some people. It's crazy. When she was 15, she fell in love with a young soldier, and they decided to elope. She snuck out of her bedroom window, and she was about to step on the roof below when she knocked over a potted plant. It made a really loud noise, and her dad ran in and stopped her. So he thought 15 was too young to get married. What? That's so strict. But 16 was okay. What? (laughs) When she was 16, she met John Bowie Timberlake. And this is how they met, according to her. She saw him riding his horse down the road from her window, and she said to her mother, there's the man I'm going to marry. Oh. <laughs> yeah, this this kind of thing, it makes me not look forward to our daughter growing up. Oh, I know. This is, well, We yeah, have to cover our windows. I know. We'll just put her in a tower. I like it. <laughs> well, she wants really long hair. She wants really long hair. She wants to be a princess. We'll show her what I mean, brevity is. When she was 15, she snuck out of the house to get married. Oh, that's terrifying. And she's 16 now, and she's, like, so geared up that a good-looking guy rides by, and she's like, I'll take him. Well, you know, those hormones are probably raging. I guess so. So Timberlake saw her through the window, and he was like, hmm. I mean, they, she, they caught each other's eye, basically. I, she was probably, like, rubbing up against the window. Oh, my God. This is um, reminding me of how my parents met. They met through a window. Oh, that's right. Yeah. Well, it was they were at, yeah, at college in different apartments. Right. It wasn't like your mom looking out the window like, who's there? <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, you know, I can't, I can't go there. <laughs> but they did look through the window at each other, and that's how they met. It's a pretty adorable story. Um, uh, so Timberlake saw her, and he and his friend came into the inn. The family started talking. That afternoon, apparently Timberlake took Margaret and her sister out to a picnic, and by 11 p.m. that night, they were engaged. 
That is bizarre. It's like Frozen when Anna gets engaged to Hans and Elsa's like, this is too soon. (laughs) It's every princess ever. Yeah, her parents were okay with it though. He was a purser in the Navy. I mean, he like bought supplies for the ship and he sold things to the sailors. Her parents approved of him. And yeah, I don't know. Maybe they were too tired to keep containing her. <sighs> was this a typical thing? To get married this young? It wasn't that atypical. Well, I don't know. It seems pretty unusual to me. Hmm. A month later, they were married. And John and Margaret Timberlake moved into a house across the street from the family inn. They had two children and they were, by most accounts, pretty happy. How long were they married? Well part of the story you're like (laughs) (laughs) don't worry about it don't worry that's by the way i just want to say you could put um the last name timberlake on any name and it sounds good right it's a good sounding name think about it howard timberlake jessica timberlake you don't like the name i gave you (laughs) dory I, I love our name. I think it goes great. I get to tell the kids I work with that I'm, you know, like the fish from Finding Nemo. But I did think your last name was Dor for like the first two years we knew each other. Yeah, it happens. <laughs> um, so this is where John Henry Eaton comes into the picture. Okay. Remember, he was Jackson's BFF. He wrote Rachel's Epitaph. Mm-hmm. Um, he was a U.S. senator at the time. This is before Rachel died. This is closer to 1818 now. Okay. He moved into the O'Neill family's inn. He was a 28-year-old widow at the time, and he became really fast friends with both John and Margaret. Okay. Uh, Andrew Jackson also lived with them for a while while he was a senator. He adored the whole family, especially Margaret. So this is when Jackson got to know Margaret. One incident that took place while Jackson lived there brought them even closer together. So there was this other tenant, Richard Call. You don't need to remember his name. Okay. He was really attracted to Margaret, and he didn't really care that she was married. He heard rumors that she was easy, and when they were alone, he forced himself on her. Oh, jeez. Yeah. I'm picturing, like, the scene from Pretty Woman with George from Seinfeld. Oh, God. It was, it was kind of that vibe. Did he rape her? No. She fought back with fire tongs. Fire yeah. tongs. Good yeah. girl. She chased him off, and then she ran to Andrew Jackson in tears. Jackson confronted Call, and Call said that she was an immoral woman, and she was only refusing his advances to hide her true character. Wow. Yeah. An asshole. At this point forward, Jackson kind of saw himself as her protector, and that never changed. So Eaton and the Timberlakes, they became even closer. Uh, Eaton helped Timberlake out with some financial troubles. He probably even helped expedite his next voyage. Some people say that he did that to get Timberlake out of the way for a while. While Timberlake was out at sea, Eaton and Margaret became very close. Some people started saying that there was more than just friendship going on there. There's no proof of that. There's Mm -hmm. no proof that she was cheating on her husband. Uh, But then in 1828, after being away for several years, John Timberlake died at sea. It was first reported as pulmonary disease, but later Margaret found out that he slit his own throat on the ship. What? He'd been extremely sick for a while. His asthma had been acting up. His fingers were so swollen that he had to wear his wedding ring tied around his waist. She was convinced that he'd killed himself in some delirium. Hasn't he heard of a necklace, first of all? I mean, and second of all, who slits their own throat? Yeah. The rumors... Sounds like he was murdered or something. The rumors started flowing that he killed himself because of his unfaithful wife. Well, of course it's her fault. Of course. John Eaton and Margaret grew even closer after Timberlake's death. And John soon told his buddy, Andrew Jackson, hey, I'm in love with Margaret. I think I want to marry her. And Jackson told him that he was free to follow his heart. Basically, he blessed their marriage. Mm -hmm. They got married nine months after Timberlake's death. Ooh. That, That was totally unacceptable in polite society. A woman was supposed to grieve for two years, or at the very least one year, before wow. remarrying. So there were already rumors going on about the two of them before Timberlake died. And they rushed their marriage. This along. just confirmed those suspicions, yeah. Oh. Uh, in Washington society, it was controlled by the wives of the senators and the congressmen and the cabinet members. So Margaret O'Neill Timberlake Eaton, she was an innkeeper's daughter to start with. She wasn't really high class. Mm-hmm. And from her youth, she was fraternizing with all these men. So there were lots of rumors. She was also very forward. She was used to talking politics and talking about the things that men talked about. And that kind of rubbed women the wrong way because that wasn't the role of a woman. Hmm. Then Did her, it rub men the wrong way too? Uh, a lot of men were into it. Oh. But, but men with wives 
maybe weren't so into it because their wives were kind of trying to enforce the moral code in society to uphold everything. She was pigeonholed as someone who didn't follow that. Yeah. Okay. So then when her husband kills himself in despair over her affair with John Eaton, supposedly, and Eaton goes and marries her months later, this was totally unacceptable and downright dangerous behavior Mm -hmm. in the eyes of polite society. Because she could be drowned. Because she could infiltrate the rest of society with her immorality and it could spread. So immorality could spread. So it's more of like a religious. I mean, why is it so dangerous to other people? It's like immunity, the pack immunity could be severed. Well, women infiltrated. Women, uh, I guess, from what I've read, they saw their role back then as enforcing morality in their men, especially. Mm -hmm. It was up to them to make sure that their men were good people. Wow. That's so sexist. Yeah. (laughs) It's not my job to make you a good person. Oh, thank you. It would be a hell of a job. (laughs) Yeah, not my responsibility. So, yeah, they could not admit Margaret into their polite society. And this was a problem because she was a senator's wife now. Wow. There was a whole protocol and etiquette about how you were supposed to call on people by leaving your card with them. And then they would return your call and there would be like polite reciprocal visits. There was etiquette written about it. There were very strict rules. Wow. That sounds exhausting. Right. Cut the games. Just call me. (laughs) So John and Margaret Eaton, they went to visit the vice president and his wife. This is who you were supposed to start with if you were a senator. First, you visited the VP, and then you went on to other people. Uh, The vice president was John C. Calhoun, who could be the subject of his own episode. He basically (laughs) looks like if Bill Hader were trying to play an evil Colonel Sanders. (laughs) Oh, my God. (laughs) Yeah, I'll show you a quick picture of John C. Calhoun. He's not the subject of this episode in any way. The KFC guy, kind of. So He just, I mean, here. Oh, my God. Oh, my goodness. That's a photograph. He he's, he looks like an, a vampire. Yeah. Made of stone. Yeah. Wait, is that facial hair? Or does he have hair growing out of his neck? <laughs> yes and yes. <laughs> that's, that's terrifying. His hair could not be controlled. It's almost like it is being controlled, but it was it was pushed back in, in a way that he's windblown by, by the evil night sky or something. It's and like a sheepdog is trying to poke out over his collar. I don't know what's going on with the hair under his chin. It doesn't look like it's growing from his face, though. It looks like it's growing out of his neck. So I guess that's the most terrifying photograph of a human being I've ever seen. So yeah. like, who is this man again? John C. Calhoun. He was vice president to John Quincy Adams. And then he's like, hey, I like being VP. I'm going to switch parties. I want to be the VP again. So he was also Andrew Jackson's VP. This guy. And then later. to do the same thing. Yeah. Later, he kind of led the South in their fight for slavery. So this man was our vice president twice in a row. Yeah. And was pro-slavery. Yeah. Oh, gosh. I'm so disturbed. So you can find that picture and lots of others on plottingthroughthepresidents.com in the show notes for this episode. It's a man from your nightmares. Let's just say that. Yeah. So his wife, Fluoride. um, What? Yeah. Fluoride Calhoun. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry. That's a woman's name? Yeah. Fluoride. Did she invent, you know, dental? There's no U in her name. Yeah. Totally, totally different. Fluoride. Okay. So she had a pleasant enough visit with the Eatons, but afterwards she decided, hmm, I'm not going to return their visit. And from there, Washington society exploded. So infiltration complete. No, infiltration prevented. Fluoride decided polite society is not going to let this woman in. It stops here. So the rest of the society wives did the same, and Margaret Eaton was effectively ostracized. She wasn't visited. She wasn't invited to any fancy events. She was not a part of their fancy club and never would be. Wow. And so that was bad enough. But then it got a whole lot worse when Andrew Jackson named his BFF, John Eaton, to be his secretary of war. So now instead of just being a senator's wife, Margaret Eaton was a cabinet wife. Right. She had to be let into the club. You would think. But this was going to... Back off fluoride. Well, no. Put a mint in. Put a mint in it. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I get it. You like my puns? Yeah, it just made me think of, you know how I talked about that that boy who fell in love with Margaret Eaton when she was young and tried to poison her? Yeah. He tried to poison her with a mint. Whoa, there was some weird, weird ESP going on. I guess. I had no idea. So no. I just said put a mint in it and she was almost poisoned by a mint earlier yeah. in her life? Yep. That's so. some 
You know, I, I do have some abilities, I think. I would agree. <laughs> <laughs> some psychic abilities. Oh, I don't know about that. <laughs> the day after Jackson publicly announced his cabinet choices, that's when the moral crusaders started saying this can't happen. So before he was even inaugurated, he got a visit in his hotel from this guy, this war hero, Colonel Nathan Towson. Maybe Towson. I don't know. So Towson goes into Jackson's suite, and there are tons of people. Most of them are looking for jobs. And he takes Jackson aside, and he says, hey, can we talk someplace more private? So Jackson takes him into his bedroom, where Jackson's secretary, William B. Lewis, was writing at the desk. And Jackson's like, he's cool. Don't worry about him. Uh, I want to give a little shout out to William B. Lewis, because he was cool, because he was eavesdropping, and he's the reason we know about this conversation now. Oh, Yes. Thank you, you, William B. Lewis. Yes, for being in the room where it happened. Yes. So Jackson and Tosin, they sit in two chairs in front of the fireplace. And Tosin asks if those picks that he heard were announced were really Jackson's choices. And Jackson says, yes, sir. And Tosin says, there's one of them your friends think it would be advisable to substitute with some other person. Jackson knows who he's talking about. And he says, Uh Mr. Eaton is an old personal friend of mine. He's a man of talents and experience and one in whom his state as well as myself have every confidence. I cannot see, therefore, why there should be any objection to him. He can't? (laughs) Tosin says, there is none, I believe, personally to him, but there are great objections made to his wife. Mm, Jackson says, yeah. Jackson says, and pray, Colonel, what will his wife have to do with the duties of the War Department? (laughs) And Tosin says, not much, perhaps, but she is a person with whom the ladies of this city do not associate. She is not, and probably never will be, received into society here. And if Mr. Eaton shall be made a member of the cabinet, it may become a source of annoyance to both you and him. Yeah, Jackson took this deeply personally. These attacks on Margaret might as well have been attacks on Rachel. Uh, It was like they dug up the fresh grave of his wife, and they were parading her through town, yelling, shame, shame. So we saw something similar happening that happened to his own wife. Absolutely. Yeah. So Jackson replied that he was not elected to consult the ladies of Washington about his cabinet. And he said, Mr. Eaton will certainly be one of my constitutional advisors. And that was the end of the conversation. Hmm. But it was just the beginning of the annoyance that Tosin predicted. I like Jackson in this role. I mean, I'm not a fan of Andrew Jackson at all. Yeah, I mean, this for is, many reasons. Yeah, this is one of the reasons I like this story is because... Yeah. We get to enjoy him for a minute. A little bit. <laughs> He gets to play a little bit of a protagonist instead of, you know, the killer of many Native Americans. Yes. So Jackson started hearing from even more people, including an influential pastor, Reverend Ezra Stiles Eli. He was a huge Jackson supporter. He also wanted to start like a whole Christian political party, and he only wanted Christians to be elected to the government. He wrote to Jackson saying, you've got to fire Eaton. How can you hope to preside over a Christian nation if your administration includes such a sinful woman? And then this this guy, he was a reverend, like a pastor. He wrote the most gossip-filled, you know what I heard, letter that was just filled with disgusting rumors. He said he heard that a man at the National Hotel told a bunch of people, Mrs. E brushed by me last night and pretended not to know me. She has forgotten the time when I slept with her. Gosh, we have to remember that these people didn't have social media or phones. It's true. And so this was their, in a way, their pastime and their way of relating to each other. Oh, I totally get it. In in college, I worked at a summer camp uh-huh. and we didn't have TV. Uh-huh. And yeah, we had to make our own drama. So, so AKA theater? <laughs> no, no, like rumors and talking about people and like uh, people's relationships were like what oh. we watched. That oh. was, yeah, that was our entertainment. Oh, as a counselor, watching like poor, unfortunate, like 14 year olds get rejected. (laughs) That to an extent, but I'm talking more about among the staff. Oh, I see. Yeah, we weren't truly reveling in the kids' pain. Gotcha. (laughs) Eli also shared that a fellow clergyman in Washington told him that he heard that Margaret Eaton had a miscarriage when her husband Timberlake had been out to sea for over a year. And then Eli brought up Rachel. Oh, no. He said, look, even your wife refused to see Margaret Eaton. His words were, she was too pure to countenance such a character as Mrs. E then sustained. But that wasn't true at all. Jackson knew that Rachel had met Margaret Eaton and liked her a lot. So if that wasn't true, then who knows where Eli was getting his bogus info from. Right. He was okay with bending the truth. Yeah, apparently. So Jackson wrote back telling him it was very unchristian to spread rumors. And he wrote, Oh, dear. The psalmist says, 
the liar's tongue we ever hate and banish from our sight. That's like a Southern person saying, bless your heart. Yeah, right. He's right. basically telling this reverend, like, what you're doing is... Not very Christian. Yeah. Stop lying about everything and get out of my business. Yes. Have this mint. <laughs> Here's a mint for you. Yeah. Enjoy. Enjoy. I'm never eating any mints you give me now. Mm, okay. No, I trust you. Ah, uh, fool. <laughs> so the ostracizing, it was getting even more noticeable, and Jackson started obsessively gathering letters from various people, mm -hmm. like Timberlake shipmates, other people who knew Margaret well. He was on a mission to prove her innocence. He thought that this would make everything go away. Mm -hmm. Margaret Eaton's purity was the top priority of the president of the United States for at least the first five months of his office. Wasn't he busy with other things? You would think. So John Eaton, he told Margaret that Jackson was gathering this evidence to prove her innocence, and she was not happy. She confronted Jackson, and she told him what he was doing was insulting. She basically said, no, thank you. Her words were, she did not want endorsements of virtue any more than any other lady in the land. Uh -huh. She didn't think that she should have to be defended. Right. Just let a lie. Yeah. Kind of thing. Don't even give it power by answering. Definitely. So up until now, Margaret Eaton has been kind of a passive character in this scandal. Uh, it was just things being said about her. Mm -hmm. But she doesn't stay passive. So she challenges someone to a duel. So close. <laughs> really? <laughs> she finds out about Reverend Eli's accusatory letter to Jackson. Uh-huh. And she and her mother go to Philadelphia to confront him. But I thought she said, let it lie. Well, maybe she meant, I can take care of this myself. I don't need a man defending my honor. Okay. Good for you. Yeah. So they get there, and Eli seems happy to meet her. He goes to shake her hand, and she's not having it. She says, what, sir? Offer to me the hand that would filch from me the highest treasure a woman can possess and transmit to her children? Wow. The pastor's like, um... <laughs> Whoops, she knows about that. <laughs> and then she tells him while she's there. She says, you have turned aside from your high calling to clap this slander on my back. I do not intend to leave these premises, sir, until I drag the whole of this thing out of you. Every brick here shall crumble into dust before Margaret Eaton will leave until she gets the whole of this thing out of you. Wow. Yeah. Intense. Yeah, she's there to find out what he heard and who he heard it from. Okay, so she can take down high society. Yeah, well, she just wants to get down to, like, who's spreading rumors about her. Like, where is this stuff coming from? Right. She grilled him for six hours. Wow. And he folded like a cheap suit. <laughs> He told her that the minister who said she had a miscarriage was John Campbell. And he was the minister of Margaret's own church in Washington, D.C. Mm -hmm. Andrew Jackson went there. John Quincy Adams went there. He was this influential pastor mm -hmm. who was apparently spreading rumors about her. How very Christian of him. Yeah. And she got the details of the story about her supposed miscarriage. Ugh. This is what Eli said he heard from Campbell and Campbell heard from uh, Dr. Carver, I believe. Okay. So this is a game of telephone. That he's then repeating back to yeah. Mrs. Eaton. So, yes. So the story is, when her husband had been out to sea for over a year, she called for the doctor. And when the doctor arrived too late, she was there hurt in her bed with her mother next to her. And they were laughing. Creepy. Margaret supposedly yelled to the doctor, you ought to have been here a little sooner and you would have seen a little John H. Eaton. Creepy. And Margaret's mother said, yes, doctor, you lost a good fee for Major Eaton would have paid you well. Wow. It's just um, very Rosemary's baby. Yeah. And she said to him, state to me, sir, in the depth of your black heart, can you cherish the idea for a moment that any decent mother would sit by and make a joke at the infamy of her daughter? But no, the whole thing is a lie. Wow. Yeah, so this this wasn't just some story. This was a detailed, almost like demonic, evil, who right. would ever act in this Laugh way. Laugh at the death of her baby. Yeah. yeah. Both um, of them, her and her mother. Yeah. Um, complete, complete falsehood. Yes. So she went back to Washington and she confronted her pastor, Reverend Campbell. This time she took her husband with her. When she was interrogating him, she apparently like fainted and she cut herself on a sofa. So nice. she was bleeding all over the place and they had to leave. Was she laughing? <laughs> I don't know. But as they were going, John Eaton turned to the pastor and said, your blood will have to be spilt for your audacity. Wow. So later he challenged Campbell to a duel. Oh, no. But Campbell was a, a pastor. He was like, no, thank you. I like spreading rumors <laughs> instead. I don't like physical violence. Yeah. I just like mental warfare. <laughs> he said, why don't you sue me for libel? He knew that Eaton didn't want to put his wife's honor on display in a public trial. So that never happened. 
I can't believe she went to these actual houses and did her own investigation to defend herself. I mean, that's pretty ballsy. Yeah, that's one of the things that I loved about digging into this, because I've heard the story kind of told in shorter versions in different places, but none of those abridgments really got into her active role seeking out these pastors and getting information and just acting on her behalf. And I thought that I, I was really excited about sharing that part of her story. Yeah, she's definitely director of her own narrative there. And all of these rumors, once they were actually investigated, turned out to be completely made up. They even found the guy who supposedly said he slept with Margaret and she didn't remember him. He said he never said that and he didn't even know her. Oh. The timing of the supposed miscarriage story took place before Timberlake ever went on a long voyage. It was all Mm. just lies. Yeah. This scandal was tearing Andrew Jackson's cabinet apart. The only cabinet members who supported Jackson's defense of the Eatons were the Postmaster General and Secretary of State Martin Van Buren. All the others in the cabinet, they seem to support Jackson's anti-Eaton VP, John C. Calhoun, who is a total turd. Yeah. Okay. So Jackson, he couldn't take how his own cabinet members and their wives are part of this mess. So he called a meeting. It was almost like a hearing with all of his cabinet, except John Eaton. And uh, Calhoun wasn't there because screw that guy. (laughs) Yeah, you try not to be in a room with Calhoun. (laughs) Generally, yeah. Especially after nightfall. (laughs) His nephew, Andrew Jackson Donaldson, was there along with Reverend Eli and Reverend Campbell. And Jackson's secretary, William B. Lewis, was there. So thanks for the notes, William. Oh, William B. Lewis. Thank you for this story. The entire meeting was about Jackson presenting evidence to defend Margaret Eaton's honor. Keep in mind, everybody's terrified of Jackson. He was great (laughs) at getting really angry and seeming out of control uh, just to be scary and get his way. It was one of his tactics because, you know, he was a bully. Wow. But that only goes so far. Jackson had his nephew read the letter of accusation from Eli and Jackson's response and other people's letters testifying to Margaret's virtue. And then Jackson gave his own long defense. So after all of this, Jackson asked Eli if he would retract his accusation against Mrs. Eaton. And Eli said, on that point, I would rather not give an opinion. And then Jackson screamed, she is as chaste as a virgin. Wow. I mean, she had two kids. She was married several times. I don't know. Yeah. But in Jackson's mind, she was an angel. So Jackson was screaming in his cabinet. Margaret Eaton was out there interrogating pastors like she's Jack Bauer. (laughs) John Eaton was challenging them to duels, but none of it's working. The social mores are too strong. Society has decided that Margaret Eaton must be ostracized, whether the accusations against her are true or not. And people were too afraid to break those conventions. Even Andrew Jackson's own niece, who was his de facto first lady, the hostess Mm -hmm. of the White House, Mm -hmm. she bought into it all, and she wasn't associating with Margaret Eaton. Mm -hmm. Jackson couldn't control his cabinet or his family when it came to this because the rules of society were too strong. Hmm. So this problem could only be solved by a magician. Of course. Enter Martin Van Buren, the little magician. They call him that? Yeah, that's one of his nicknames, along with old Sandy Whiskers. (laughs) I'm going to show you a picture of Van Buren. Oh, is he the one with hair all over his face like a werewolf? Um, I'm not going to say no. <laughs> oh, man. Right? <laughs> this is him older. He was a little bit younger at this time. But look at him. Pretty snappy dresser, right? Yeah. And his, I mean, he looks friendly. Yeah, he and was. he does have hair all over his face. Yeah. He has like, like sideburns, cheekburns. Yeah. It's yeah. just, I mean, hair from head to chin. Uh, He basically built the Democratic Party and modern politics. His organizing skills helped get Jackson elected. And there were three reasons why Martin Van Buren was on Jackson's side during the Eaton Affair. Okay. So number one, Van Buren was a widower. He didn't have a wife who was entrenched in the social circles making the rules for women. He didn't have anybody to answer to at home. So this is all women's fault, really. (laughs) You know, you can't just... the women dragging down the women. Women, I mean, it was... At this point. It was sort of their role to enforce these societal rules. But, I mean, the men were right there with them, going along with it and probably influencing them in ways. So women might take some of the blame unfairly, but it was... They were the faces of these rules in society and, and enforcing this realm. They didn't have the power to vote. They didn't have much power at all. But this they saw as their role to make sure that morality was adhered to. Mm -hmm. 
And number two, Van Buren, like Margaret Eaton, he was a child of an innkeeper. He grew up in a similar environment in New York where people were constantly talking about politics and news. He might have understood her in ways that other people didn't. Mm -hmm. And number three, he was politically savvy. He knew that if he wanted to be Jackson's successor to the presidency, he needed to stay on Jackson's good side. And that meant being pro-Margaret Eaton all the way. Hmm. So it was probably a political strategy, is my guess. Definitely a part of it, yeah. But I think that he probably got along with Margaret Eaton, too. And I don't think he felt like, oh, this disgusting woman, I'm going to pretend that she's okay just to get my way. I think he probably saw through some of the BS that was happening. Okay. So Martin Van Buren is the one that comes up with a solution to this problem. Oh. I don't quite understand how it worked, but this is what he did. He said to Andrew Jackson, here's what we're going to do. I'm going to resign. Eaton is going to resign. What? The Secretary of the Treasury, the Navy, and the Attorney General, we're all going to resign as part of a mass reorganization of your cabinet. The Postmaster General can stick around. (laughs) A reset, yeah. The Postmaster General, they said, could stick around because he shouldn't really be a cabinet position anyway. And he was really good friends with the Eatons. But this idea, that would get Margaret Eaton out of the fray. And it wouldn't look like it was all about Eaton. Mm. And it would get rid of the jerks in his cabinet who weren't listening to him and were ostracizing the Eatons. So he was going to reset his cabinet. But what was the explanation they gave for resetting the cabinet? They didn't really have to. A lot of people figured out that it had to do with the Eaton affair. Uh Uh-huh. But this was just what they were going to do. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Jackson was against it at first, but then he agreed. And Van Buren pulled it off. And then a year later, Vice President Calhoun resigned too. And Martin Van Buren became Jackson's vice president for his second term. Mm -hmm. And then he went on to take over the presidency. It seems just all politically (laughs) strategic to me. He was very strategic. Yeah. Um, Biographer James Parton has a quote that others love to repeat whenever they talk about this story. So I'm not going to pretend that I'm better than them, and I'm going to repeat it too. <laughs> okay. The political history of the last 30 years dates from the moment when the soft hand of Mr. Van Buren touched Mrs. Eaton's knocker. Can you translate that, please? When Martin Van Buren's soft hand, when his politically savvy, smooth touch... Okay. Yeah, knocker had a different meaning then. Right. But it makes the quote so much better now. (laughs) Yeah. Over time, Margaret Eaton was more accepted into polite society. John Eaton died in 1856 when Margaret was 56 years old. Wow. Uh, And this time she waited three years to remarry. Mm. So she had gotten the clue. At 59 years old, she married an Italian dance master and music instructor in his 20s. Mm. Antonio Gabriele Bucignani. Bucignani. I might be mispronouncing that wrong. Bucignani. Bucignani likes his cougars. Yeah. She had seven years with him. And I hope they were good because in 1866, Antonio ran off to Europe with all of her money and with her 17-year-old granddaughter. Dude, right? he conned her? I mean, it was a long game, but yeah. Oh, maybe he just wound up playing that game eventually, not initially. And not Well, initially, her granddaughter would have been 10, so uh, yeah, I don't know. Oh, wow. Yeah. Maybe, oh gosh, that's just a shame. She died 10 years later in poverty. Oh, these stories are making me sad. I'm sorry. Her autobiography was published after her death. In response to the whole petticoat affair, this is what she said. Just let a little common sense be exercised. While I do not pretend to be a saint, and do not think I was ever very much stocked with sense, and lay no claim to be a model woman in any way, I put it to the candor of the world, whether the slanders which have been uttered against me are to be believed. Well, so she's not necessarily speaking against them, but maybe at a certain point she was like, you know, I can't control what everyone does to me or thinks about me, but believe what you're going to believe. Yeah. And that's it. Definitely. There's no photographs of her when she was young, mm-hmm. but this is a photograph of an older Margaret Eaton, and I think you can still see the fire in her eyes and see the feistiness. Oh my goodness. Wow. I see. She does look determined. And I think that you can see, like, in maybe the, the structure of her face, you can imagine, like, a really stunning young woman mm-hmm. that could turn heads. For sure. She's make people beautiful. poison themselves. <laughs> so, yeah. I mean, Jackson... I mean, I I look at this as his slut-shaming evolution, 
It doesn't seem like he was slut-shaming in the end. It seemed like he went from slut-shaming the two women at the ball. Yeah. And then he morphed and evolved into being a defender of, of women. That's what I'm talking about. And so, I mean, do you think there were key things that happened to him that evolved him? Or is it just that he fell in love and then, and then was reminded of that love with a friend later in life? Yeah, I think that it was seeing the honor of this woman that he loved being besmirched that he took very personally. I don't know if he necessarily evolved or if he believed that if a woman was guilty of being a prostitute, that she then should be shunned. Mm -hmm. but, but he didn't believe that Margaret or Rachel should be shunned. No, no woman that he cared about could right. ever be guilty of anything like that. like that. So they must have their honor defended. I don't know if he really learned that it's nobody's business what women do with their sexuality. Mm -hmm. He wasn't trying really to defend what any woman was accused of. He was trying to deny that they were guilty of it. So, yeah, I mean, it's hard to say how evolved his thinking became. And what kind of self-reflection he had on that. Yeah, but I think he definitely saw the pain that Rachel went through in Margaret's story, and he poured himself into trying to defend her. Mm -hmm. And when I talk about how he wasn't truly evolved to the point where he thought women should be able to do whatever they want, mm -hmm. that battle might have been impossible to win at that time. Mm -hmm. It wasn't really something that he could publicly advocate or even feel mm -hmm. uh, within his time. So I sort of give him points for trying yeah, it's endearing that he, you know, he does have that Southern mentality of chivalry and honor to protect his, you know, the women in his life. Yeah. That's nice. <laughs> I don't know if it makes up for all the terrible wrongs he's no, done. No, it's, it's, it's not a balancing <laughs> I mean, act. It definitely doesn't. But no. Um, no, we're not trying to do a balancing act here. So, yeah. Thank you so much for plotting along with us this season. Uh, this was an entirely new adventure for both of us. We learned a lot along the way. Please help spread the word, rate and review the podcast, share it with your friends. It means so much. It means so much to us to have had this journey together, but also to have gotten so much positive feedback from everybody. You really have lifted our spirits during the hard times of balancing this podcast and raising our family and working full-time jobs <laughs> all at once and juggling life in that way. So life is hard and you guys made it easier. So thank you for your comments and thank you for plotting. And please reach out with your questions or ideas on Twitter at Plot With Me on our Facebook page, or you can email plotting through at gmail.com. We're going to take a little break. But, yeah, um, I think we'll probably be back before summer really hits. So have a good summer. Yeah. Oh, have a good spring. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for plotting. Thanks for plotting. Bye. Those hormones are probably a raging.